there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? I'm Don Hall and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. And welcome to the podcast. We are now at 1998, and as 1998 got underway... Jen Ellison and I started dating. And it was an odd romance, you know, based mostly on our working relationship. So, you know, I mean, I produced the shows. I was very good at producing shows, getting those kinds of things done. She had a billion ideas for shows. So together, her ideas could take life because I would produce them. I mean, it was not the best basis for a dating relationship. Uh, sort of the commingling of the two just seemed kind of natural and fine. Um, and that was how it worked. Now, the Jen Ellison aesthetic, first of all, a little bit about, about Jen. She was a DePaul University graduate. She came from Black Mountain, North Carolina. And uh, her sister is a, a genius. She's uh, a filmmaker and uh, an entrepreneur. And, and Jen graduated from DePaul University, so she worked with a lot of people who have gone on, uh, Dave Desmulchin, who you might uh, see in a lot of films, including the Ant-Man movies, uh, Sean Gunn, um, you know, a a lot of people that were uh, kind of a big, are are bigger deals now in an independent set. She also had an improv background. She was a member of comedy sports, so she did that. One of the best actors I've ever met and, and just an absolute brilliant director with some very, unique ideas on how to create theater. And with Jen, WNEP Theater took, uh, I would say it was a full reboot of the artistic voice. Um, So she decided that the very first show under her artistic direction, we did Hard Day's Journey into Night, and that was sort of a carryover from the previous WNEP, but this is now Clean Slate. She was gonna deviate from our tried and true path of producing only original works, and produce a published play. And the play that she decided, I think it was, uh, as I recall, it was something she always wanted to do when she was in college, never got a chance to do, was Don Nigro's Grotesque Love Songs. Uh, Brief synopsis. uh, Pete and John live with their mother and father, and the father's a horticulturist. A pretty young woman named Romy is engaged to Johnny, who's just inherited a ton of money from a family friend, Mr. Agajanian. Pete pesters his mom about why Johnny received the entire inheritance until she admits that Mr. Agajanian was Johnny's father. Stunned, Johnny retreats to the greenhouse and finds Pete and Romy making love. Everyone but Johnny is haunted by a traumatic past experience, the mother by her affair with Agajanian, the father by the memory of his first true love, a Terre Haute whore, Pete by his failed marriage to a circus con artist, and Romy by her two failed marriages. All of the characters but Johnny also know what they want. 
Louise and Dan want the contentment of their marriage. Romy wants to bake bread in a big old house. And she wants Pete, who finally admits that he wants her too. Finally, Johnny realizes what he wants is to go to Nashville to be a singer of sad love songs. All right. So Johnny was played by Seth Fisher, Pete by Mike Ross. I played the father. Kelly Simmelsberger was Romy. And the excellent Sarah Charper played my wife. We booked Donnie Skybox at Second City, which was a carryover from our experience of Hard Day's Journey into Night. And we did our tech rehearsals from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. because the space was booked for most of the time. It was a good show, and the six or seven people that actually came to see it said so. The venue wasn't exactly playing to the strengths of the piece, which was a comedy space, and this show was more quirky than funny. And we were performing at 10.30 p.m., so there were some production misfires in that regard. In the end, Grotesque Love Songs was a nice little show that gave our artistic director a chance to stretch some and the company to rest after the trauma of so many people leaving. Things were warming up, though. Jen, Seth Fisher, and I were in the process of writing, according to Chris Jones in the Chicago Tribune, one of the two worst plays of 1999. A group of writers began the process of taking a wordless children's book and crafting a play out of it. And I was formulating a two-person improv show that was a follow-up to uh, Motherless Stage Horse, if you recall from an earlier episode. Grotesque Love Songs was reviewed, and Nick Green of the Chicago Reader had this to say about Grotesque Love Songs. Much like Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres, a rethinking of King Lear, playwright Don Nigro's setting of a classic in a modern context is too diluted and touchy-feely to be effective. Nigro's loose adaptation of 19th century novelists Guy de Maupassant's Pierre et Jean retains all the standard elements of melodrama. A pair of rivalrous, rivalrous brothers, a secret that threatens to tear them apart, and a convenient plot twist that might ultimately bridge the gap between them. However, grotesque love songs fails to convey its source's wit and moral weight. Part of the problem is Nigro's Indiana bumpkins, who are too stereotypical to be convincing. The character's petty hopes and aspirations might be viewed as extended metaphors for thwarted ambition, but they never take on any larger significance. Michael Ross delivers a strong performance as Pete, the brooding brother, in fact, all five cast members managed to add some depth and humanity to Nigro's humdrum nuclear family, but they can't compensate for the script's glaring deficiencies. And although J director Jen Ellison creates some memorable stage pictures, her staging is also confusing. She allows the actors to move about with little regard for imaginary doorways and walls. These drawbacks, coupled with the script's pat, anticlimactic ending and sluggish pace, make for a particularly long evening. I'm guessing that the fact that it was at 1030 at night, it was a full length play might have had something to do with that. The fact that we were limited, um, we could not build a set because we were the 1030 show in a comedy space. There were a lot of uh, limitations to that, but I wouldn't disagree with his uh, assessment of the script. It wasn't the best script, but it was one Jen really wanted to do. And so Grotesque Love Songs was sort of a jump start, like a, a simple jump start to what would ultimately become, uh, I guess I'd call the Ellison dynasty of shows. Jen, after Grotesque Love Songs and around that time, decided that perhaps the original theater, you know, the original pieces 
uh, model was the way to go. She was very inspired by, as you recall, Metaluting the Amazing Science of Mind Review, which was one of the most original pieces I've ever been a part of. And so she decided that the company should create more plays, not more events, not more improv, but plays. And what Ellison liked was a writer's room. She liked to get an idea, get a room full of people that were writers, and then just start writing. And it took a long time. It was a longer process than sort of the improv mentality. And it had a, a, some uh, ties to our work with Armageddon Radio Hour. Um, so that worked in that way. But she wanted to write plays, not sort of episodic pieces. And the future plays, because we did this a lot in the aughts, included uh, Phobia, which was taken from the big book of phobias, the Invasion of the Minnesota Normals, which she wrote strictly, but it was inspired from the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Let There Be Light, which she and Dave Stinton wrote. Uh, the inspiration was John Houston's band documentary about battle fatigue. The Edward Hopper Project, which was a 19 writer process that took two years to write, all based on the paintings of Edward Hopper. But before all of that, there was the mysteries of Harris Burdick. I purchased a book for her, just, you know, it's one of those things you buy, and it was a book called The Mysteries of Harris Burdick by Chris Van Allsburg. I really liked his artwork. It was really fun, and she really liked the book. And as I read and she read it and she looked at it and looked through the pictures and then it, suddenly it occurred to me that this might be a very interesting, at least writing exercise, if not a play in itself, a great writing exercise. I found out that school teachers use these pictures as a writing exercise on and on and on. And I thought this would be a really interesting thing. So Jen said, all right, let's pursue it. Here is really the introduction because there's not really a synopsis to this book. I first saw the drawings in this book a year ago in the house of a man named Peter Winders. Though Mr. Winders is retired now, he once worked for a children's book publisher choosing the stories and pictures that would be turned into books. Thirty years ago, a man called at Peter Winders' office, introducing himself as Harris Burdick. Mr. Burdick explained that he had written 14 stories and had drawn many pictures for each one. He brought with him just one drawing from each story to see if Winders liked his work. Peter's Winders was fascinated by the drawings. He told Burdick he would like to read the stories that went with him as soon as possible. The artist agreed to bring the stories the next morning. He left the 14 drawings with Winders, but he did not return the next day or the day after that. Harris Burdick was never heard from again. Over the years, Winders tried to find out who Burdick was and what had happened to him, but he discovered nothing. To this day, Harris Burdick remains a complete mystery. His disappearance is not the only mystery left behind. What were the stories that went with these drawings? There are some clues. Burdick had written a title and caption for each picture. When I told Peter Winders how difficult it was to look at the drawings and their captions without imagining in a story, he smiled and left the room. He returned with a dust-covered cardboard box. Inside were dozens of stories, all inspired by the Burdick drawings. They'd been written years ago by Winder's children and their friends. I spent the rest of my visit rereading these stories. They were remarkable, some bizarre, some funny, some downright scary. 
in the hope that other children will be inspired by them, the birding drawings have been reproduced here for the first time. And that's the introduction to the what is ultimately a picture book. And there are 14 drawings and there are 14 titles and captions. So the idea was set by the book itself. Jen started the ball rolling by inviting a number of folks that had either written for us in the past or had expressed interest in writing for us. Initially, it wasn't even slated as a potential show. It really just was. Let's get together and write. Let's have some fun. Let's be creative. So everyone was given copies of the pictures, the captions, the titles. Everybody was encouraged to write like a five to 20 minute piece that emulated the fairy tales of old. In other words, tales not designed to teach a lesson, but to scare the shit out of children so they would avoid strangers, not steal, treat each other like fellow human beings. We'd meet in our one room studio in Edgewater each week and would read the pieces to each other. The pieces were really interesting and very diverse in nature. So Jen decided that this actually would be an excellent anthology type performance piece. Mike Ross from Grotesque Love Songs was chosen to eventually take all the pieces and craft them into a final play. He, in turn, brought in a friend of his who had expressed some interest in writing for the project. So one session, in walks this quiet, dry cat, Dave Stinton. He was new, so Mike had him read his one piece first, The Third Story Window. When he was finished, we were all pretty much completely knocked off of our feet. It was apparent that this Stinton guy had some juice. It was a phenomenal piece of prose, bordering on poetry and perfectly summing up the picture he was using for inspiration. In combination with Jen's very dark two-part piece about a tiny door in a basement and Ross's goofy piece about a killer of tooth fairies, the tone was being set for the larger play. Mike decided to include Dave in the honing process for the finer play, and nobody disagreed. The first draft of the play, entitled The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, was written primarily by Ross and Bob Wilson and presented as a stage reading at the Bailiwick Loft space. Well, it wasn't what we were looking for, or what Jen was looking for. In an effort to soften some of the darker edges, Ross and Bob created a children's play, pretty Disney-fied and a bit on the cutesy side. Jen went to the boys and said, no way. Now, she went over the dark nature of fairy tales with them and emphasized that we're not a children's theater company. So the next time around, with Stinton acting as Ross's partner, the play ended up becoming an amazing combination of brooding, dark, and unnerving stories with some fun, playful pieces throughout, and really an absolutely charming, almost Lewis Carroll-like uh, through line about a young girl learning to tell stories in order to escape Burdick's book. So essentially, she gets sucked into the book, meets the narrator, and then has to learn how to tell stories in order to escape. At the end of the play, you discover that the narrator was teaching her to tell stories because the book was filled with dangerous characters because they didn't have stories and they required a constant narrator and the narrator was basically training her replacement. So the girl never escapes and the piece, the third floor story, third story window that Dave wrote is essentially her parents recognizing that she was dead and that she would never come back. It was really beautiful and we had our play. So Jen approached Jeff Shavar to write underscoring 
And Shavar wrote, and it's one of the things that I, I think is an enduring thing, is that I think about Jeff Shavar's music and his ability to write amazing underscoring jingles, whatever, and the musical, The Wicked and the Sex. And it does, it, it, it's one of those things where uh, you think, wow, what, what a shame that this amazingly, incredibly talented human being uh, in the end is not doing Hamilton size plays. I mean, just, just amazing stuff that he created and uh, no different for the underscoring for Harris Burdick. Jen then tapped Bob Wilson to direct Harris Burdick. He really was sort of burnt by her being the artistic director. He had directed Metaluna. So she said, let's give Bob this piece. And Bob had a, a real taste for it. And Jen acted as his assistant director, his strength being um, the visuals of the piece and her strength really being the actors. Um, we held auditions and all of a sudden had a sudden, because one of the things that Jen brought to the table that not everybody was thrilled is that we were not going to cast from the ensemble specifically, that everybody had to audition and we would audition people outside of the ensemble. And suddenly we had an infusion of Ross and Stinton friends, including the spectacular Mike Powers, the radiant Jim and Wall, and the multifaceted Matt Colton, a whole bunch of other people that came in that were just kind of amazing and it just brought in new life to WNP Theater. Shavar recorded the underscoring on 27 cassette tapes. Yeah, yeah, this was the late 90s and that te technology still existed and was prevalent. So in, in addition to producing the show, I was the light and sound tech for the show. So the board at Bailiwick was much like the audio deck, rudimentary, no go board. So juggling light cues and cassette tapes quietly just above the audience during the show was sort of a silent upper body dance every night. Um, I tried to, you know, I'd like to play a, a cassette tape of the underscoring and then move it to the other thing and then play the next one. While that one was playing, I would be rewinding that one so it was prepared for the next day and running lights. It was a little nuts. At the end of it, though, I loved the mystery of Harris, Harris, mysteries of Harris Burdick. I mean, it was just, it, it is in my top five WNP shows. It was just sad and haunting and funny and really unrelentingly beautiful in so many ways. I cried at the ending every single night of the 24 performances we did and audiences did too. The show did really very well. We did very well with the part of it was we had an infusion of new people that, you know, had friends that wanted to come see them. Part of it was that we had uh, pretty good reviews. Um, and uh, it, it, it set the stage for Ellison to discontinue her desires for pre-published works and focus on the new and untried, but within a very specific lens of her brilliance. Adam Langer, and if you recall, he was the critic that I turned away from reviewing The Lost Weekend years before, was sent by the Chicago Reader, and he didn't disappoint with his consistent criticism of our work, summed up with sort of a shrug, and why would you do this? Here's his review of the initial production of The Mysteries of Harris Burdick. Chris Van Allsburg's dreamy paintings have inspired one of the more imaginative but peculiar shows in recent memory. Riffing on Van Allsburg's book, Michael Ross and David Stinton have created a grab bag of original fairy tales linked by the character of a young girl, nicely played by Abigail McBride, who learns the art of storytelling to arm herself against some, a sometimes cruel world. At their best, the stories have a Lewis Carroll meets Renee Magritte surrealistic magic. 
A young man devises a flying machine for sailing into the sunset. A bird disappears from a piece of wallpaper. But like some of WNP's previous efforts, The Wicked and the Sex, for example, this show fails to differentiate between what's compelling and what's merely irritating. The pace flags noticeably during a flaccid pantomime sequence, an overlong tale of a magic chair maker, and an underdeveloped, underdeveloped self-consciously cute story about gangster tooth fairies. Ambas ambitious to a fault, this hit-or-miss show with an underutilized cast of 15 meanders through its peaks and valleys of eerie darkness and light-hearted whimsy, often losing the trail of the main story. A bit too bleak and verbose to succeed as children's theater, but too just disjointed and moralistic for adults, the mysteries of Harris Burdick could use some focusing and editing. On the other hand, the Chicago Sun-Times critic Lucia Moreau fell in love with the play, and sort of like the, the blurb from her writing was, a playful and magical show that illustrates one of the best aspects of small off-loop theaters, an unabashed determination to invent uniquely original work. Recommended. And that is Grotesque Love Songs and the Mysteries of Harris Burdick. We're almost done with the 90s for WNP Theater. We have two more groundbreakers for the small group. One, as I said, that was listed as one of the, oh, one with, I didn't say this, but it's one who's listed as one of the top five shows of 1999 of any kind by New City. And the other listed as one of the worst two shows of 1999 by the Tribune's Chris Jones. Thanks for checking in. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Peculiar Journeys.